0: Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode, to have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Additionally, there will be an email capture in the show notes specifically for people who want to help and learn more about this Kickstarter I'm running next month. It is related to bees. So if you've ever asked yourself, how am I helping out the bees, considering they lost 40% in the US alone last winter, then sign up for the newsletter and you'll get weekly updates about the developing problems in beekeeping and bees specifically and bee researchers as well. So I'll leave that there check it out. Uh, it's going to be amazing. You guys are for long time listeners and fans who've been messaging me on ways you can be supportive. This is a big way. So even if you just send that email capture to your, your Twitter being like, hey, this guy's working on something, that'd be really helpful. If you want to sign up yourself. That's amazing as well. Remember, show notes, check it out and it'll be labeled as well. We're joined with Dr. Rai Menjes. She is the President Director of Aerospace Research Systems. She's been in aerospace for over 20 years. Really truly a passionate person. We get into so many different topics in this interview so I decided to split it into two like I've been doing. It seems like you guys really like the smaller increments so that you can um, you know listen to one and then not have to like guess where you pick up after if you move platforms or something like that. I don't know, whatever it is you guys seem to be liking, uh, the two-parters are like breaking them up, so I'm going to keep doing that since it seems to be what you guys enjoy. If you don't like that, you know, send me an email, let me know, because I'm always just trying to respond to what I see <laughs> I see you guys enjoying. So today, we're going to learn about Rye Mendes, uh what she does for fun with her aerospace and, and that science background. Uh, she does a lot, and it's really exciting to see how every bit of her life is touched by the STEM experiences and knowledge that she has so without further ado we're going to get into what she is building and what she's working on and if you want to check her out check out aerispace.com, space.com a-r-s-i-s-p-a-c-e.com and learn more about what they're doing she's also based out in ohio which is kind of interesting you, you know an aerospace company out in ohio you don't hear much about that but 25 years you're going to learn about a lot of stuff so let's get into it and this is part two i didn't i didn't know that um dupont didn't take any money I mean,
1: Mm-mm. it was all um, expense based. They didn't take one, one cent of profit.
0: I'm, a, I'm a, uh, I'm to read, but uh, just as a, I was trying to like give listeners something to read or, or to learn more about these things. But I'm about to embark on the Oppenheimer. There's a good buyer. I don't know if it's good or not, but it's like it has a red cover, and I'm about to check it out uh, <laughs> and read it. I just finished uh, Linda B. Johnson's, I not know, series on on his uh, rise, not, it's not his series, it's Robert Caro's series on him. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm trying to get more into like the Manhattan Project because there's like, so much about it. It's like, it's probably one of the most pivotal things in the last I know, couple hundred years that happened. And like, I didn't well, know about that. the
1: Manhattan Project actually helped contribute to uh, getting us into space. And a lot of the things we learned in terms of instrumentation, physics, materials, really played an important part. Um. It, it's it's interesting if you see the early years of space. Um, I don't know if people are aware that our ability uh, really to do work with rockets and and launch rockets in 1947 and 1949 to you know altitudes of 250,000 feet had, to, had came from not only the work by Robert Goddard, which was exceedingly important, and he didn't live to see a lot of it. Also came from us basically taking the German V2 um, um, missile mm-hmm. and redes- redesigning and integrating it with our technologies and, and learning um, vertical launch systems from that technology. And it's, it's kind of interesting the way things all weave together.
0: That's, yeah, that's, what, that's one of the things I like learning about history because especially people, I have a lot of friends my age, um, for obvious reasons because we grew up in the same age group but um i also like people of different age groups i like talking to uh, a lot of people but the a lot of people my age seem to find that they like they get lost or like they're on a like they're like racing someone else but really they're not racing anyone or they don't know what's like valuable to them or what they want to be doing and the interesting thing is like if you look at history like things connect in the weirdest ways like there's no like knowing what tomorrow will bring you but like like if you were to look at teddy roosevelt for instance like that person, he he started out really, really weak. Like he had asthma and they didn't really have a way to, of of helping him. And like, he was a very physically weak person when he was growing up. But like when he was older, he was like, he was boxing in the White House and he was a very physically robust person. Like it drove him to work harder. And if you look at his life, it's like everything kind of led up to the next thing. But it really like there was no, there's no way to like lead from, you know, asthma to exercising, to writing a book on the world, 1812, like things like things only line up and like add up in an additive way i feel when you're able to like find things and go really really deep kind of like the einstein quote like spend 55 minutes and then like defining and then like spending five minutes solving it because like um for instance just using the roosevelt quote like um the roosevelt situation he spent he really liked the navy so he spent a really really long time learning about the war of 1812 and like how our navy fit into it and so he wrote a book about it and like that book was literally like kind of like the bible for naval warfare for the like everyone reads it and even now like people read it if they're really into naval warfare so like i feel like the point i'm trying to make is that sometimes people today feel like they're lost when in reality and then they don't make any choices because we have like we have the internet so we can literally do anything at any point like you like right now we could like look up like how to build a nuclear reactor if we wanted to but i'm sure maybe you already know how to do that i don't but um like there's so many choices and then people feel like any choice is like the bad choice but like i feel like is using you as a case example of someone who's like constantly pushing to like where her interests lie and you know has all these things that she's able to do it's like there's an element of of that i think that people should like take and apply to themselves like if you if you go deep on anything you'll probably become really, really great at it and it'll help you do the next thing that'll connect in a really, really weird way. Sometimes people feel like their interests won't connect to things that are profitable or like help them be successful in whatever way they define it. But I feel like, especially if you look at history, and this is like the bigger point is that like history shows that like things connect in odd ways and that it's a good thing. And so people should like find ways to do things now that like help bring out their abilities versus like sitting on the fence which is like a larger thing that i've been talking with a lot of people that a lot of people email me like how do i do this or like what should i be doing and so the big thing is just like pick something that you like and then dig deep into it because like it's going to connect in a weird way like nothing nothing doesn't connect especially like we i think humans like inherently like find connections in weird ways like it's just how our brains work
1: well learning is inherently serendipitous so that, that i think is basically what you're saying and i think that's probably very true
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years for us with the space plane is that um, everything just started falling in place. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to say that everything is is always wonderful in the space community. But to, to be a woman, uh, founded my company when I was at college, um, went to Los Alamos for a few years and started working as a contractor after I left Los Alamos. I went back to the company after several years um, and I uh, was surprised at, at the hostility, um, you know, we initially had was um, a woman in company and really there was a lot of harassment uh, even within the aerospace community and uh, the pro- professional societies. There was a lot of harassment. So a couple years ago when we knew we were celebrating our 25th anniversary. And I've been with, I guess, ARS now about 21 years um, in various configurations. And the question to me was, how did we get to be such a diverse company and successful in the model? Because we spun off, I guess, four companies now and other technologies that have been licensed by other companies. And um, that way we funded our work. And one of the things was how how did we do that, and and how did we end up with such a diverse group of people? And we have a, a Chinese American actually was born in the Crown Colony of Hong Kong, um, uh, Egyptian American, um, uh, Native American. So we have this African American. We have this very diverse group of people, and a lot of them are women, and all with doctorates. And somebody asked me, "How did you do that?" And I kind of stopped for a minute and I looked at him and I said, well, I hired my friends and I was in a board meeting recently with the star sailor group has um, raised a lot of external funding. We've gone, we probably raised several million dollars in the last couple of years for different projects, a series A funding. And one of the questions on my board was how did, you know, how did the interview go? And I told them about it. And one of our, um, <laughs> Uh, sorry about the dog. It's One right. of our um, board oh. members endowed um, the uh, a business school for a great deal of money on, uh, in entrepreneurship. And I said, well, the greatest thing confronting entrepreneurs today is a lack of diversity. And I said that really affects their ability to be successful. hmm and I, I told him about the interview and you know, he said, that is really insightful. He said, that's, it's really important. And I said, it's important in a lot of ways because basically not so much who are the friends of the people who run the companies, it reflects on the culture of the corporation. So you have leadership of a leadership of a company, whether it's a 50 person company or a 5,000 person company that's defining the, corp- the corporate culture. Mm -hmm. And that that need to be diverse in terms of thought and competencies and capabilities and interests um, is exceedingly important to being successful. And as a small company, um, that's probably been our biggest driving factor in our ability to be successful. Mm -hmm. And the the funny thing is, in the last couple of years, I brought some other people in who I had met at Los Alamos in the space sciences group when I was there. And so we have some really unique capabilities and we have some of the people who are really the best in their fields and that just happened. It just, you know, you, you make the right decisions, you you do the um, best work you can do. And uh, you, you you learn um, the things you need to learn in terms of the corporate world that a lot of tech people, a lot of scientists and engineers aren't good at. and everything falls into place. And it it was just an extraordinary experience that everything fell into place after, you know, 12 years of uh, really working to put everything together. And so there was serendipity that everything just fell into place a couple years ago, because back in uh, 2007, 2008, we had 70 million in funds that were basically um, raised for us to work on the space plane. And we thought we were in good shape little did we know that we'd end up with one of the worst recessions in modern history. So, we had 30 million up front and 40 million in, in other types of thing and literally in less than 24 hours we lost every dime uh promised to us because our um financial group disintegrated overnight. Um and that happened to a lot of companies in that time frame. And you you just keep moving and you find other ways to do things, but um the same thing kind of happened in a really short period of time. Everything fell into place.
0: Hmm. Is there, how do you, like? I mean, the question I'm trying to figure out because as a listener, I'd want to know how are you able to get through so much? How are you able to deal with the hostility from other people? Um, for <laughs> founder? How do you deal with like 2008, like everything falling through, like, how do you get? Well, it, in two
1: thousand and eight, with everything going to crap, and I'll, I'll use a word you can actually broadcast or podcast. Um, everything. Um, number one, I knew we were good. I knew we had some of the best science. Um, we weren't just going out and saying, "Hey, we got a spaceship," because um, I'd been everywhere in the Southwest and the spaceport development groups, and I'd been talking to people all over the Western United States. Uh, I went back to New Mexico to look at what was going on with the commercial space group uh, sponsored by the state. Um, I traveled everywhere and I saw what other people were doing and it didn't have any real basis in engineering or science. So I, number one, I knew we had real technology. We had real science. We had real people. We had um, beginning to get real patents. Uh, one of our most important patents has to do with a new class of functional structures. Um, so you know, we we had you know a lot going for us. Um, we weren't we weren't headed by a rich white guy. That was our only our only difficulty. Is that you know um, we had I would go to NASA JSC and meet with them, and I did that very early on and. I won't tell you which company, but it was one of the the better known companies today. They would actually, the people at NASA make fun of that company's engineers because they knew nothing about space. And it was, um, you know, I would sit there in disbelief that they were actually just ridiculing these people because they were so, um, ignorant and incompetent when it came to actual space systems. And I, I was astonished. So I had a lot of confidence, um, The Star Sailor Group had just received a chunk of funding. Um, Within a year, I was hired to teach spacecraft engineering again, so I felt like I was involved in in at least um, evangelizing about space in in ways to build competency and good credentials for new engineers in the space area, which was really necessary. And um, I think it's just the kind of person I am. Um, My parents had me very late in life, and uh, you know, I mean, when, by the time I was in college, my dad was, you know, definitely like close to 70. And I just, you know, um, had a different view of the world. You know, I I have a longer view, I think. And I think a lot of people today don't have a good long view of, of things. And you have to have a good understanding of who you are and, and where you're going and what you want to do. And I, you know, and if you're, uh, Small business person and you're raising money and you get to the point where you're actually raising millions of dollars of Series A funding, you better be a gunslinger, you better be a warrior, because you're going to have to learn to fight. You're going to need a board meeting and you're going to have someone call you a stupid C word or something else. And it's like, okay, number one, um, I started out being very diplomatic um, and saying, okay, look, that's not appropriate. We're not, I'm not going to respond to the point now where I'll say, you know, F you, you know, learn to behave like a human being or get the hell out of our, our board meeting. Because sometimes these guys are really arrogant and really nasty. And you you, you you learn to fight. And a lot of women are afraid and a lot and frankly a lot of men don't want to fight because it makes them uncomfortable in a business situation. Um and and I have a, a reputation for being a you know a really nice person, but you know, I'll also knock you out and I'll tell you what, I'm good with a heavy bag. So I'm not a big woman, but Hey, learning how to box is, is, has been a great thing because now that I don't have people around me playing lacrosse anymore, (laughs) boxing has replaced that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I I think it's really, you know, who you are, you know what you want to do and you understand your position in a larger ecosystem and you know, your value. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it wasn't until a few years ago that we were on the radar of any, of most of any of the other companies. And suddenly um, people started noticing because um, we were getting more recognition from other businesses and larger companies. And we were doing manufacturing and creating new products and uh, getting more patents and things were just uh, moving in that direction. So, Um, that it really comes, it's it's up to you. I mean, anybody who's been on a playground that, you know, in first grade is going to know that if you're not going to plant your feet and say, this is my space, then you're going to have a problem. So really it starts there. And um, I'm really concerned that um, a lot of kids and a lot of young adults and even your generation coming up behind us I want to make you guys warriors because we need warriors Mm -hmm. and that comes through education and sharing, you know, what it means to have a belief and have a, you know, real strength of conviction to do the work you want to do and do it with high quality and good practice. You know, right now we're in the middle of a crisis with a company called Boeing and the 737 max, um, that they've grounded, should, it should never have happened. happened, And that is not just a breakdown of systems engineering, it's a breakdown of management culture, but it's also something called bad practice. And we want people when they're doing engineering to engage in good practice. And that's something that we have to remind engineers that we need to engage in good practice, because engineering is one of the three professions that supports society, engineering, law, and medicine. And if you don't engage in good practice, then basically you're you're violating your fiduciary fiduciary responsibility to the rest of society. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it's just a waste not to do it right the first time.
0: Yeah, my uh, my grandfather always said that if you have the <clears throat> if you have two roads ahead of you, you're you're at a fork, and mm-hmm. one seems long and bumpy, and one seems short. They should just choose the longer path of the bumpy path because. More often than not, you'll end up taking it anyway. And mm-hmm. I, I was young when he told that to me, and I found that, especially as I observe other people, if I try to take the shorter route in anything, it usually is the stupider route. Like the wrong, the long bumpy path, usually is the right one. Even if like it doesn't seem like it's the like it'll be fun or whatever, but it, it, it usually is the right choice to make. And then if you just choose it and like kind of own it, it's better. But I have also noticed that. People are very anti-confrontational, like to the point where, like, if you ask a question the wrong way, people get really upset about it. Or, <laughs> like, like I have a, I've been having, I, I'll like word this weirdly, but I've been having disputes with a doctor that I'm probably not gonna see anymore. And this dispute is, they spent eight months trying to get a prescription of mine filled that I need, or I'll die. And I said, <laughs> that's stupid. I I need this to survive. And, uh, when can I get it? And they were just like, we don't want to deal with you anymore. And I was like, get guys, like you have a job to do with like, come on now. I'm literally going to fly to another state to get a doctor that isn't an idiot. But like so often I feel like people don't know how to handle confrontation. And then, but I think the what you said is very true. Like if you, at the same time, like if you find something that's really deeply moving and important to you, or let's say like you care about homelessness or if you care about, um, like cancer or any any of the, like, these huge issues. Like that's one of the benefits of living in today's era. Like we have so many huge problems to to have. Like pick the one that you care about, dig into it. And like like the I won't call it like the suffering, but like being in a situation where there isn't an easy out where you have to do hard things. It makes you stronger. And it's surprising how often, at least in my life, that like the things that you think would break you or like make you um, you know, less than you are actually make you better. Like they mm-hmm like even like the things that like most people like they care like these like the baggage around with them but if you actually like if you like reframe like restructured how you viewed it it's like those things shouldn't be weighing you down because you got through them like whatever it is that like is like oh you know you can't trust people because a it's like you got through that like whatever that bad thing was like you got through it and that should help you better understand like how strong you are and if you are weak in certain areas it should help you understand that as well so you can make changes to be better and i think that's like just to echo your point, really, because it's just a, such a huge point that, like, you really have to stand up for yourself. But it's like, it's almost as soon as you're willing to stand up for yourself, people stop. Like, people back down. Like, there's, like, in, in my life, like, there have been times where people, like, will get in my face and I'm like, it's not going to happen. We need to, you know, it's like what you did, like, with that one guy, you need to F off <laughs> or stop it. It's <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. They, they usually, like, retrace their steps and, like, oh, you know, I, um I, I wasn't realizing that I, I was uh, coming off that way. Like, they, like, it like immediately deescalates. Like they always, it's always almost like they try and just like dominate you to get you to shut up. And once you like show that you're not going to do that, it usually deescalates pretty quickly. At least in my experience, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they're, they're meaner to you um, until they see your boxing skills. Hopefully they're nice.
1: <laughs> they're good. But the thing is, is that today people think that, that being a bully is being, um, you know, competent and showing that you're successful. If you if you can shove people around, that's unfortunate. And we really have to end that because it's not productive. and, one of the things that worries us is about 55 to 60% of all aerospace engineers are over the age of 55 today mm-hmm. and only 15% are under the age of 35. So my age group is getting squeezed really badly, but also you're having men and women leave uh, aerospace engineering in their forties now at a higher rate than we've ever seen before. Cause they're, they're, they're not getting new opportunities. And that's a real issue, and the the government agencies that could do something are not doing anything. But the other part is is that we're not getting new engineers at a rate that we really need, and that's really disconcerting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so people who are studying engineering today um, are less likely to get a doctorate than you know 25 years ago when I was studying engineering, and that's something that we have to change. So. Uh, we actually have a shortage developing of American people with PhDs. And that's because just, there's, there's not the um, impetus uh, for people to get their doctorates now because it takes so long. And that's a big investment. It's a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are areas that we really have to focus on in terms of development. And that's one of the areas we really need to focus on. Somebody, you know, asked me if we were going to go to Mars, and I said, I don't think we're going to go to Mars as the United States. I think we'll go to Mars between the U.S., Canada, and Europe, maybe, because going to Mars is going to cost probably close to a trillion and a half dollars, and that's a lot of money. And the realities are that we have terrible infrastructures, um, we have energy issues, and we have, you know medical and educational issues that we're not taking care of so we have to we we should learn that we have to invest in education because if we don't invest in education then we're not going to get the people we need to do the work Mm -hmm. so we figure um several groups of us got together in different companies and um we did a longitudinal study over a few years of um aerospace engineering because nobody else was doing it strangely enough and we found out that um, in 10 years uh, the aerospace engineering community is going to start uh, experiencing some real stress when it comes to human capital to talent and that's a major issue so um, there are only a few ways you can deal with that create new engineers get engineers in um, allied fields, like electrical and mechanical engineering to switch to aerospace engineering, um, or you hire foreign engineers to do the work for you. So those are the major um, you know, challenges right now we're looking at in terms of talent. And in, in, in 10 years may sound like a long time to some people, but it's really not, it's a really short period of time. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we have to look at, it's like, oh, we're we going to go to the moon, and we're going to go to Mars well, there are other issues and nobody wants to deal with those other issues. Um, It's like, you know, are we going to get to 100% renewable energy? Well, not with our current model because our current model is a utility grid model. And even though we have lots of wind farms, all that energy produced by those big turbines, you lose 80% of that energy of that electricity when it's transported to the end user. That's a big loss. So the ability to create local energy um, is is really important. And when we can produce local energy, then we really can get to 100% renewable energy. And we can see that in our lifetime. And that's that's one of the goals we see because if we can't do that on Earth, we're not going to be able to do it on Mars.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, that's really kind of a critical issue. Um, it's one thing to, to go to Mars and do an initial um, exploration. It's another thing to actually become a spacefaring civilization, which I can tell you most of the people I know working in space today really believe that humanity needs to become, it's part of our evolution to become a spacefaring civilization.
0: Yeah, I think we should be, sp- I won't say my thought because it's stupid in comparison to what you just said. So <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> So we're, uh, to be respectful of your time, I know we have a few minutes left, so I'll, I'll ask you the, my rapid fire that I always like to ask people at the end. Um, so the first one is, what is a question you have that you do not have the answer to? So the example I give, and you might actually, you might have the answer to this actually, but the, um, um, feel free <laughs> to, to not answer it. But if, um, if the Big Bang is required to make the universe, right? If I were to go back in time and like shoot the Big Bang in the head, in a metaphorical sense, so it wouldn't exist. Like, what happen? What would be here in it's stead? And then, what was here before the Big Bang? I wonder these things. Uh, physicists will answer me saying that it's hard to say because the Big Bang made time, so there's no before it. But then, like, it's really weird. I just imagine like white space, but like that's not what it is. But anyways, that's what I wonder, and I don't have the answer to. But what is the question that you have that you don't have the answer to?
1: Um. I, I think the question is is uh, about our existence and how we perceive reality. And, you know, if, if we're exploring, you know, outer space, you know, we should be equally exploring inner space. And how do we do that? How do we, we create um, new realities uh, for other human beings? I mean, we've got really basic problems. We've got 2 billion people without access to clean water every day. And we have energy issues around the world. Um we're focusing on profit driven, and I'm gonna get in trouble for this because I do consider myself a capitalist. I just think capitalism has to be responsible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that you know, we have such profit-driven components to our economy today that the, the work that needs to be done is not getting done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was an evolutionary biologist that said one time, um, someone I saw at a conference, he said five percent of the human population, got us out of the caves. So, does that mean that 5% of the human population now gets us to a more advanced, to a more evolved place on on Earth? And um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that when people start thinking about space and maybe what they can do with space, and you know, you can buy a satellite kit, you can buy a CubeSat kit and build your own satellite today, um, and you can even launch it if you can pay the 50,000 for the hardware and launch and you can have your own satellite and think about the idea that if a group of people got together and they had their own satellite and what would that mean to them and how would they see the earth differently and how could they do things differently by doing that? So part of it's changing perspective, but I think we can take humanity um, out of itself and explore, you know, our own space a little bit more efficiently and Um, more genuinely, I think we're going to be uh, doing a lot. I know that right now there's a big discussion again about alien life. And first of all, if we're not, if we're going to talk to alien life, we should learn how to talk to other species on our own planet. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, of course, there's life elsewhere in the universe. We exist, therefore it exists. But we make the assumption that our, Our own reality, our human reality, is the reality of other species. And I suspect that their realities are radically different. And In in my book, I call it the paradox of of the um, telepathic dolphin. You know, they may be more intelligent than us, but it's highly unlikely they're going to build a starship. Um, So it comes down to how we define life, how we see life, and how we define reality. There was actually a man that believes that the human brain is actually... Um, the instrument that creates time and I'm not sure he's terribly wrong because it's our perspective that defines time in terms of our reality so in terms of the big bang can you go back in time and as you said shoot the big bang in the head I don't think you probably can because it's already occurred Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not something you could change but um, you know it's it's you know, the whole causality thing and looking at um reality in the universe, that's it's a huge question as you as we start to enter space as a as a species. That's that's a really big deal because I think we're gonna learn that our concept of reality and even our concept of, of what we consider metric time is probably not the reality of the rest of the universe.
0: I think that like to, for people listening, just like imagine, like how a cephalopod would. Like, I mean, like one of the for the longest time we didn't. We thought we were the only sentient creature on the planet, but now we're finding like new ones all the time, like elephants, uh, dolphins, whales. I think cephalopods are on there as well. Like one of the biggest one of the biggest problems they have on identifying a sentient creature is that they can't. It's hard for them to figure out a test that we would understand that the the creature could do that would let us know that they were you know sentient and so like a, a cephalopod is like the craziest thing on the planet like i think that someone was saying i was reading something that's like the most alien thing exists but like that's just the thought uh thought exercise for people to think about like how would like if you were like a cephalopod that had like you know brain matter in your arms and you could like pop them off and stuff like how would your world be different like it, it's it's really hard to imagine like all this other alien life, which is just like to echo your point. But uh, all right, so next question, and I'll try to... Well,
1: I feel it. really badly because I had calamari the other night. <laughs>
0: I, I would... I like fish food, but I just feel like cephalopods, they're so smart. Maybe like not all of them. I mean, like there's probably like the homo
1: sapiens. So, so, so I, I actually ate the dumb squid, so it's okay.
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, just eat the dumb ones. <laughs> but um, All right, so the next one is... Ah, uh, what is a problem you would love help with? So it could be something business related, could be something personally related. It could be anything, but maybe a listener listening could be like, "Hey, I could help with that." And then they send me an email, and I talk to you about it. I don't know, but they. <laughs> what's a problem that you need you'd love help with?
1: Um, I'm trying to think of. There are a few things I'd like help with. I think, um, probably, um, getting better communications with a larger space community because we are so unique and we're such an um, unusual company. And, uh, you know, if you've if you read my website and some, some of our descriptions, like, like about us, we really are a different kind of company. Um, so the idea is, is that our business model is so unusual. Um, we get paid now, by the way, to teach other companies how to create virtual um, engineering programs so they can operate across the country using uh, talent in, in situ, in other words, where they're located. And the, the, it's really changing the economy of engineering companies and the way you do R&D and the way you can actually use resources at locations that you as your own company could never afford. So it, it's really a unique model, and it's, it's done such an extraordinary job for us. But also, we don't have a you know, 200,000 square foot headquarters. Um, So that makes a big difference in the way people perceive us. So I'd I'd like to change the perception of us. I think that's the important thing to educate people that we do things really differently. But parenthetically, the other thing is, I think in about two months, we've got a big announcement coming out that we're going to be looking for a headquarters location. So um, I think things just kind of come full full circle too.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, if you stay in Ohio, it'd be cheap. I know the land out there is like, like a No,
1: dollar. Ohio is really expensive and recruiting people to come here is like really tough. Yeah, I feel like. Um, and and feel, I'm not from here. So, you know, even though I like it here and I like the people here and a lot of our investors are here and um, our experimental shop is here and all that stuff and partners are here. Um, we have partners, a lot of partners in Colorado, New Mexico, my home state which is my family's home state in New York. And I'm not talking about New York City. I mean, northern New York in the middle of freaking nowhere on Lake Ontario kind of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are other places where we could more easily build out. I'd like to say we could do it here, but um, there are more and more social stressors um, in Ohio. And that's become a real issue. Um, so attracting talent to come here is an issue the big companies can offer giant packages and all kinds of opportunities. And, you know, um, and, and so really, um, if the state was much more open state, which it's not, um, things would be easier. And it's kind of a shame because Ohio is a pretty state. I mean, geographically, it's a pretty state and people weren't aware that there are actually hills and lakes and here that, and really, um, great kind of forest, natural areas. But, um, it's, it's likely, I think, you know, maybe uh, Colorado in general is becoming like this, the space valley and like Silicon Valley, it's kind of becoming the space valley.
2: Mm-hmm. I call
1: it space mountain. So <laughs> cause it's a mountain state.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, most of our, our um, big partners are in Colorado now. Hmm. So we still have some in New Mexico, but uh, Colorado, I think is going to become probably the space hub for the United States, just the way things are going. And, um, there are advantages in launching from a a mountain region of the United States that you don't have from other parts. So.
0: Colorado freaks me out, but I won't get into that. I have to like be respectful of your time. Um, I just mountains kind of weird to me, but, uh, what is a, for, first of all, where where will we be able to find your book when it comes out? And then second, what are some books and resources that you tend to give out to people who are excited about space or that, like if, if, if someone wanted to like learn about your thought process or anything that you like, what are some books that you'd give to them?
1: Um, well, I think there's some really good books. If, if there are people really interested in, um, like space planes, uh, and this is actually from my publisher and our space plane is in the book and we do give it out occasionally. It's space planes from airport to spaceport, uh, by Matthew Bentley, and that's a Springer publication. My Space Systems and Infrastructures books for the Commercial Space Management Series will be coming out uh, from Springer next year. I have another book called The Commercial Astronaut Handbook that originally came out in 2005. It's going to be republished uh, sometime early next year as well. Um, We have an engineering handbook that we created as part of our uh, engineering program for new people joining us. We're gonna be self-publishing that in the next year. Um, But there are some, I think, um, for for real uh, engineers and scientists out there, there are some really exceptional um, books. There's a, um, I'm trying to, the the, um, uh, Space Mission Analysis and Design book um, is a good book. I use that as a uh, uh, textbook but really there's there aren't a lot of good books that bring into the concept of engineering space environment and the nuts and bolts of things that exist out in the world right now i'm i'm actually working on the book to do that um you have a lot of interesting books in terms of um there's a book called um full moon and i'm trying to remember who wrote that Uh, michael light wrote that and it gives you a, a kind of a popular understanding of the moon um there's another book called uh universe by um boy what's his name i can't remember but it's it's a it's a great book and then um there's another book called entering space which is i think is really interesting and um i think it gives people a good cultural overview and then there's um oh boy what's his name michael ward for people who are interested in alien life and what that could possibly mean for us It's called Life As We Do Not Know It. And we used to have a reading list on our rocket time site. And that was because one of our spinoff companies is sometimes it takes a rocket scientist.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I think, and I don't think it's been updated recently, but let me see what the reading room, yeah, reading room. Here we go. Um, Traveler's Guide to Mars by William Hartman. Um, Really interesting book. Um for for people who are interested in in culture and perception and the the stresses on science today by political and governmental entities Carl Sagan wrote a book called The Demon-Haunted World mm-hmm. Science as a Candle in the Dark and that's a great book.
0: Yeah, I love that book. I love all his books. He's a painter. Mm-hmm. Uh Pale Blue Dog is really good too. Especially cuz the where the idea comes from, like the,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but anyways, um, um, excellent book recommendations and w- where can we find your book when it comes out? Or w- will we just bring
1: Yes. And, and I'll, I'll probably, you know, springer and I'll probably have announcements everywhere. And, um, <laughs> uh, but Matthew Bentley's book space planes is, is actually pretty good. And for people interested in space planes and horizontal takeoff and landing technologies, which is really how we're going to get into space in terms of affordable space access. Um, he gives a really good overview that I think is pretty accessible.
0: Will it be more affordable than the reusable stuff that Elon's doing or will it?
1: Yeah, because yeah, of course. Um, it's, 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 that, it's that problem again. Um, cost of vertical launch in terms of your cost of mass to get to orbit is 80% of your mass. Now, you can have more efficiencies in the type of mass you have. You make things lighter, so you get more stuff up for that 80% cost. But if you do horizontal, it's 40% cost to get to orbit. So, yeah, it's a big difference because Hmm. you're using the aerodynamics of the Earth, of the atmosphere, to get to space. So, you're actually launching from, say, 50,000 feet.
0: That's interesting. Well, then... I don't know if this is like a question I can ask or not, but the, like a, a, a Falcon nine thing is like, I don't, doesn't it cost, I think it's like 5 million for them to, for the, for like the fuel. It's like five or 50 million, for like for a launch. Well, from them.
1: I'm going to, I don't know. I don't, I'd have to look at, at what their payload is and I could probably answer that. If hmm. um, so I don't really know offhand, but um, you have to remember Um, Elon Musk got almost a billion dollars in taxpayers funding to do what he's doing. So he got a lot of money from NASA and the air force to do what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So and and Jeff Bezos, didn't get a lot of funding, but he's gotten a lot of help. Um, So you're, you're, you're dealing with um, right now, it's not a competitive environment in space. uh, Rocket labs, I think they're running about $6 million a launch. Um, but it's for us to get into space. We're not talking about heavy lift yet. And really, heavy lift with a horizontal vehicle, that'll change the equation forever in terms of access to space and what we can launch. And that's how we build um, on the moon. We, we build cyclers, which are natural um, or artificial. Um, either an asteroid or a a, a platform that um, naturally cycles or orbits through the uh, solar system. So it's kind of like a network of of transportation structures that allows us to access different parts of our solar system. So those things are gonna make the biggest change for us in terms of becoming a, a species that's going to be part of the space environment.
0: and that was Ryan Menjes remember to check her out at aerospace.com aerospace research systems and the founder of sometimes it takes a rocket scientist and these are things that she's been going going on for decades so definitely check them out check out her linkedin uh, everything's going to be in the show notes and i mean i mean you heard this this person fantastic so passionate and i mean I learned so much just listening to her. I wish we could have gone on for hours, honestly. She's one of the uh, one of those types of people, and I think all of you will agree as well. Where it's just like you could just sit and listen to her talk about whatever she's going on that day, because just so check her out, aerospace.com, and look in the show notes for her links. Thanks everybody for coming around, and here's my outro stuff don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.